So here we find ourselves in John 6, 1 through 15. And you know, um, I want to add a note of congratulations to our graduates. And it's not like, you know, it's, we're in John. It's not like there's any section in John that would be irrelevant to graduates at this point where we'd be like, oh, it's too bad we're at that section. But as I was writing this week and, and praying through what this, um, how the sermon would be structured, I just think there's so many particular relevancies that are challenging to graduating seniors and to the rest of us. So let me pray and we'll get started. God, we begin by confessing our need of you. We begin before looking into your word and attempting to, to hear what it is that you're saying. We confess that we need you to show us. And so we ask, Spirit of God, would you do just that? Would you work through your word to show us yourself, to show us Christ, to show us the cross, the cross work of Jesus Christ, that we might know you, be known by you in Jesus' name. Amen. The year was 1845. The country of Germany was in political and economic turmoil, brought about riots, political unrest, an eventual revolution in, in 1848. And so that decade, between 1848, 18, or 1845-1855, in that decade, over a million Germans left Germany for the United States. They fled Germany for the United States. And so the story is told during this time of a man who had no children, whose wife had died of disease, who greatly desired to start a new life himself in the United States. So he scrounged and he saved all the money that he made. You know, he lived on a shoestring so that he could buy a ticket on the, the, one of the world's first transatlantic steam-powered ocean liners. And he was successful in doing that. He sent off for the ticket. It was delivered by postage. And once he received that ticket, which came with some instructions that were in French, he had learned French as a, as a child, but... Didn't want to do the translation work, so he, he stowed away the ticket, and now he went about the business of selling everything he owned so that he'd have some, a little bit that he owned, so that he'd have a little bit of cash. Right? He didn't have a, a ton of possessions, but he sold everything, so he'd have a little bit of cash when he arrived um, stateside. But before leaving, a friend warned him, said, you know, these trips across the Atlantic, they, they can take three weeks or even more, depending on what kind of weather the, the ship encounters on its voyage. And, and while the, there will almost certainly be food on board, served on board the ship, um, the man thought this would be far too expensive, leaving him with no money to start a new life. He's like, I can't afford to buy my food on the ship. So he devised a plan. He went down to the street to the public house where he used to eat regularly. And he implored the owner, who was a friend of his, to make him the same cheap crackers that he would serve the patrons with their beer around the tables. So he paid a small fee for this large amount of crackers. He portioned them out to last for about 20 days, wrapped them up, placed them in a suitcase along with some extra clothes, the, the very last of his belongings. And he set, set off the next morning for a two-day trip to the coast. And when he arrived... The ship was already boarding. These early liners had room for about 200 passengers, most of whom were now crowded at the boarding platform, hearing these instructions that were being shouted, but too tired from the journey to hear any further instruction and assuming he'd figure out what he needed to know along the way, he showed his ticket 
to the clerk boarding the ship, and, and he found his way on board onto a room that he would share for the duration of the trip with three other men. And he fell asleep on his cot, and he woke up the next day very hungry, not wanting anyone to see him with his crackers for fear that someone might have the same idea and steal them from him. He took one small portion out of the suitcase, made his way up to a secluded area on the top deck where there was no one around, ate as quickly as he could, ate these crackers as quickly as he could, devoured them. But on his way back to his room, he passed a small dining area where he could smell the unmistakable aroma of roast beef and mashed potatoes. He could see his roommates and other passengers gathered around these plates of roast beef. And, you know, despite having just finished his crackers, which had little to no nutritional value, I mean, these were cheap, um, free crackers at the pub, his stomach ached in hunger. He took a step inside the dining hall, but he saw this big sign next to a, a large member of the crew with his arms crossed, and the sign said, dining pass required. He thought, no, I can't afford that. And even if what little money I have can't afford it, I'll have nothing left when I get to the United States. So he followed the same routine day after day. He quietly snuck a, a portion of crackers out of his suitcase, snuck up to the secluded location on the top deck, quietly ate his crackers, then passed the dining hall, which served bacon and beans every morning for breakfast, soup and fresh bread every afternoon for lunch, and his particular favorite, roast beef. Roast beef with mashed potatoes every night for dinner. Day after day went on like this, wanting so badly to step in, but seeing the sign, dining pass required. So the man grew hungrier and hungrier. He was also noticeably weaker as the days went on. He was growing weak. He appeared ill to most of the crew and to his roommates who began asking if he was okay, if he needed anything. He began looking emaciated. Eighteen days passed like this. And on the final day of the voyage, when the harbor in New York was almost in view, he'd had enough. It took all the strength, you know, he'd been in bed for most of the day, it took all the strength to roll out of bed, limp his way up to the bar of the dining hall, slamming his money down on the counter and saying in a, a weak but firm voice, I was going to do this in a German accent, but I decided against it this morning. He said, um, sounded more Eastern European. He said, I don't care if I have any money left. I don't care how much it costs. I'm going to die if I, if I don't eat. I don't want another cracker. I, I can't stomach another cracker. You know, he says, I want roast beef, right? So the woman blinked confusingly, you know, across the counter. He said, sir, did someone not tell you? Did, did you think we'd let our passengers starve if they ran out of money for the journey? The cost of your ticket included all of this food. Your dining pass is simply the ticket that you used to board the ship. They used these dining passes to distinguish between members of the crew who were fed a different meal and the passengers. But this man had put all of his hope in this journey on these crackers, believing that what they offered him was some kind of an, a better plan, a financial freedom, when the very thing that he wanted, the very sustenance that would have satisfied his hunger, all along was right in front of him, and he didn't know it. He possessed it, and he didn't know it. He would pass it 
every day, multiple times a day in favor of these cheap pub crackers. Similarly, in our text this morning, these people who encounter Jesus are very hungry. And a theme begins here in which the very thing, right, that can satisfy their ultimate hunger, the very thing that can really satisfy the hunger they're experiencing, you know, it's right in front of them. And yet they continue to miss it. Narrative after narrative after narrative after narrative. They continue to miss this thing that can ultimately satisfy. And, and so we see this dynamic unfold in the narrative with six contrasts and comparisons. It's important that we, I think, look at the text this way. With these six, in your notes you'll see these six contrasts, six comparisons. Because, so here we have the only miracle that is shared across all four gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay. The feeding of the 5,000. And you know with this being such a common miracle. The miracle that's shared across all four. We can know a few things. We can know first of all that there must be some significance. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. All share some version of, of these um, details. But we can also with familiarity I think. Sometimes become so familiar within the life of God's people, with a story in, in the text of Scripture, that we begin to sort of twist it to meet our ends, right? Like, I'm so familiar with the story that now I kind of use the story as a basis for driving my agenda, you know? I use the story, it's like a moralistic framework. We can really slip into that when we grow so familiar with the text. And so what I think we need to do is come back to this text and see the contrasts that it draws out. Because I think the very, what, we, what we sometimes inevitably end up doing is reading the passage in the exact same way that these Jewish people were seeing Jesus wrongly. That then needed Jesus' correction. So, so six contrasts and comparisons that will hopefully help us draw all of that out. Beginning first with two types of followers. Two types of followers. So this is all included in liturgy packet um, in the notes. Look at, look at verses 1 through 3. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Okay, so if you've been with us in John, that statement should send some immediate red flags. But we're going to get there. Okay, so verse 3, Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. So this isn't the first time. Right? We've noticed this and it won't be the last because chapter 6 is uniquely going to draw out some of these distinctions between those who profess an insufficient faith in Jesus in the narrative and those who profess a genuine faith. We'll see genuine professions even in this text. Right? But here in verses 1 through 3, we see some of this because we're provided the narrative context. So if you're at home and you're reading your Bibles... It's really useful to ask questions that kind of show you the narrative context of the passage. So this answers questions like, when is this happening in the narrative? Where is the story taking place? Who is present in the story? Like, who are the main players? What are they doing? Right, so um, in terms of the when, once again, we're not sure how long after the events from chapter 5, from last week's events, has been so helpfully preached for us last week. So thank you, Ben, for that. So we're not sure how long it's been. This expression, after this, or um, sometime after, depending on what your translation is. That term is vague. You know, it's, it's intentionally vague. It's not 
It's not intended to establish any kind of a tight chronology. It's just a general sequence of events. So sometime later is when it's happening. The where is described as the other side of the Sea of Galilee. You know, um, we're not going to get too in detail with this because it can just get to be a little much. Even if I had the map up here, it's like, okay, but just know we should have some idea. It's, it's, the, it's the eastern side. The other side of the Sea of Galilee is the eastern side. Okay. And then um, John describes this as the Sea of Tiberias. Why does he... Why does he do that? Well, in 1820, or sorry, in AD 20, Herod Antipas founded a city on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. The city was named after the Roman Emperor Tiberius. And uh, over the course of the first century, the city grew, right? And it grew with such popularity that the name of the lake was adopted from the city. So, Sea of Tiberias uh, was what most people during John's time would have known the Sea of Galilee to be called. And so they go up on a secluded hillside in, hillside in this region, most likely known today as the Golan Heights. That's the when and the where. But the focus on the story really is the who, especially in this first section. Because here we have this small group of disciples that Jesus, by grace, has called to himself. And now a large group of people, a group as we'll see that could number to 20,000, maybe even more, who now also begin to follow Jesus, to follow after him, to pursue him. What are they doing? Well, as we look into the other synoptics and we get some glimpses of here, Jesus desires to teach his disciples, to have this quiet moment, this secluded moment with his disciples to teach and yet a much larger group is now pursuing him. That's what's happening. Do we see once again why the crowds are following him? The text says they saw the signs that he was doing. So you remember as we're making our way through both the end of chapter 2 and the end of chapter 4, we see this problematic faith on the part of the people. Right? The spurious belief in Jesus. Insufficiently grounded in what they thought Jesus could do for them. To advance their own agenda rather than what it was that Jesus claimed about himself. How it was that Jesus was revealing himself. What he actually came to do. Okay, this was faith, if you remember a couple weeks ago. Faith improperly grounded in the signs Jesus performed, but not in Jesus. They wanted Jesus' stuff, but they didn't want who Jesus actually was, right? Faith improperly grounded in the signs Jesus performed, but not Jesus himself. I quoted Grant Osborne a couple weeks ago saying, Astonishment that is anchored only in the sensational will never suffice for genuine faith in the Savior of the world. That's exactly what's happening here. The astonishment of these crowds is driven along by the sensational desire for what they think that he can give them. So that's the idea. Two types of followers. Spurious believers who follow Jesus on the basis of what they think he can do. On their own personal agenda for Jesus. And genuine believers. Who are called to him by grace. By grace alone. By sheer grace. Okay. That's what we see here in the text. But you might ask. You know. We'll see this. We'll see this increasingly by the way. In chapter 6. This distinction between the two. You might ask. Jeremy. Okay. So if these people. If they're pursuing Jesus. On the basis of their own agenda. Rather than how Jesus reveals himself, then what's the difference? Like, what's the difference between 
their agenda in the first century for Jesus and who Jesus really is, what he says about himself, what he, came, what he actually came to do. And we see that really um, best expressed in the next contrast. So here we move from two types of followers to now seeing two views on Passover. Two views on Passover. Verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Okay, so John's already given us, he's already given us the narrative context. So that's where we see all the details of the narrative. But here in verse 4, he's, he's taking another step. He's giving us more than that. Yes, in one sense, you know, in one sense, this is a part of the narrative context because it does tell us when it's happening. This is March or April. It's during the Passover. We see actually evidence of that even in the synoptics where it says that the grass that they were sitting on was still green. This would have happened in March or April because it was warm enough for the grass to be growing nicely but not so hot that it would get later in the summer it would get scorched and brown, right? So this is March, April. So it does tell us that. But this statement from John in verse 4, even if you reread it, you'll see it signals more than just narrative context. He, he doesn't just throw this in. With the rest of the information above. He totally could have, but he doesn't. He uses a transitional word, now, to set it apart, to make it distinct. He says, now the Passover was at hand. This is the theological context of the passage. Not just the narrative context, but it gives us a theological context. In other words, John's using this sentence to, not only to tell us when Jesus is doing this, but he's using it to tell us who he is as he does it. He wants to say something theologically. He wants to say something about who God is, about who Christ is. And so we see Jesus is the ultimate. Who is he? He's the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover. Increasingly, John's going to be making this argument. Not just when Jesus is doing it, but who he is as he does it and who he is is the ultimate fulfillment of Passover. And yet, listen, listen, this group of 20,000, by the end of this, you know, by the time we get to verse 15, it becomes pretty clear. This, this group of potentially 20,000 people, they appear to potentially agree that Jesus could be the fulfillment of the Passover. The problem is, they view the Passover much differently. The first century view of Passover, the predominant first century Jewish understanding of Passover it was very similar to the way that Americans feel about the 4th of July, right? It was kind of their 4th of July. It was like Nationalistic Independence Day, you know? They would say, sure, it's a rescue, but it was a rescue primarily from a group of oppressors. It was a rescue from Egypt, the great oppressor. And yes, there's a sense in which that's true. Of course, we see this theme of rescue from slavery. The Ten Commandments begin by God talking about the grace of, of him leading his people out of slavery. But, but listen, Passover, even in that context where it's talking about Israel being released from slavery, Passover was primarily a rescue from the judgment of God. That is to say, it was, yes, it was a rescue from slavery, but in an ultimate sense, it was a rescue from the slavery of sin, rescue from human sin, the same, the same judgment that was upon Egypt at Passover, the death of the firstborn, was also upon Israel. Unless, do you remember, they placed the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. So long as they remained under the blood of the lamb, the judgment of God would pass over them. Right? It's all about him. Jesus is now saying, listen, and John makes this continued, 
this continued plea for his readers to see this, Jesus comes as the true and better Passover lamb, that his blood will be poured out for his people so that if we put our trust and hope in him to save us, despite the fact that we're due judgment, if he's the object of our faith, you know, if we come to believe that we're due judgment for sin and we rely entirely upon him to save and not upon us, his judgment passes over. Why? Because we stand firmly under the object of our faith, the blood of the lamb. And yet, while that story of Passover was read and retold again and again and again amongst God's people, the vast majority celebrated it as a nationalistic holiday of independence from oppression. It became, as many commentators note, really a rallying cry for, for independence, nationalistic independence, nationalistic fervor. This is why in the first century you get so much messianic fervor just boiling over. And we'll see evidence of exactly that in verse 15 when people are forcing, wanting to forcibly bring Jesus to be their messianic ruler, right? That's, that's the kind of fervor we're talking about. So here in chapter 6, Jesus now sees an opportunity to teach his disciples related to how Passover is all about him, okay? And we start to see that immediately in Jesus' question to his disciples. So look at verses 5 and 6. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Okay, listen. The idea here is there are, there are now two purposes behind Jesus' question, right? Two purposes. And the initial purpose is clearly the reality, of, you know, yes, there's this reality of problematic faith among this group of people who are now pursuing Jesus. An inadequate understanding of Passover, an inadequate understanding of, of who he is and what he came to do. But despite that misunderstanding, the first intention, the first purpose of this question is one of compassion. The text tells us here, he lifts his eyes. He sees them. And he sees the crowd coming to him. And that, the synoptics draw this out even more. I mean, I think we see that here. But it draws out even more specific attention related to Jesus' compassion, surveying the crowd, seeing their need. You know, he knows their hearts. We've seen that at the end of chapter 2, right? Like, they believed in him, but it's spurious belief. So he did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in the heart of man. He knew what was in the heart of man. So he knows their hearts. But he still desires to give them something to eat. Okay, so Mark's account tells us this. When Jesus saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. This is the same context. When Jesus saw a large crowd, this crowd now coming, in the midst of him wanting this quiet moment with his disciples, this large crowd is coming. When he sees the crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. It's really interesting. What's Jesus' first impulse of compassion? You know, what is it that Jesus sees as compassion-based ministry, first and foremost. It's teaching about who he is and what he's come to do. And, and, you know, honestly, I think this is a cultural sticking point for the life of the church in the, in, in the West. Jesus immediate, he sees, he has compassion. He sees this crowd, he has compassion. And his immediate shift is, I want to tell you the truth about who I am. 
You need to know me. I'm going to teach you. And, and yet it's so easy, you know, it's so easy for us to approach our church life. And teaching is so far down on the list in terms of what would amount to our, our reason for, for, for coming and partaking. Man, it's so easy to make our, our church life about our preferences and our comfort and our programs. And, you know, at some point we, we might make excuses or we might, you know, teach, teaching's pretty far down. And yet for Christ, it's like, listen, fundamentally, fundamentally, you need to know me. Fundamentally, you need to know who I am and what it is I've come to do. I need to teach those who don't know the Spirit of God working through His Word that people might see and understand and believe. And actually, that's exactly what, despite the fact that Jesus is performing a miracle in this context, it's exactly, it's exactly what He does. He's, he's teaching them through this miracle about who He is. He's teaching them. And it's out of that same compassion that He desires to, to feed them too in the midst of this miracle. So He asks the disciples, where are we to buy bread? that these people may eat. But that obviously leads to the second purpose of his question. The first one is compassion, you know, but at least to the second purpose, which is linked to it, because Jesus knows precisely how it could happen. You know, he's not surprised. It's not like Jesus is surprised by his own miracle. Like, oh, I didn't know that, that was going to happen. Right? And yet he sees here, and this is the second thing, compassion, but secondly, an opportunity for disciple making. You know, an opportunity for discipleship. He wants to put his disciples to the test, as, as verse 6 tells us. Question is, this disciple-making test, you know, how do they do? <laughs> All right, so that, that brings us now, fourthly, from, the, from uh, two purposes behind Jesus' question to two answers to Jesus' question. One from Philip, one from Nathaniel. Starting in verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they to so many? So this is, so how do they do on their disciple-making exam? And, and honestly, like, I say this in a way that should free us, not condemn us. They fail it. Okay? I don't say that in a sense of like, you know, for us to go feel like heels. I say it like, this should make us feel free. This is another case, countless cases in the Gospels of discipleship failure. We see throughout the accounts. It's another example of why the Gospels can't become some manual for methodology of disciple making because the point here isn't that the disciples watch what Jesus is doing and they learn from it and they go and do what would Jesus do and they learn from it and they go and do likewise. The point here is that they have no clue and, and so they depend on him for everything, for everything. They don't see and so they're dependent on him to show them and he does. They don't understand, and so they're dependent on him to make it known to them. And, and he does. He doesn't lambaste them for not seeing or understanding. He shows them. He tells them. And, and we see that here. We see this, this discipleship failure, though, in both responses. Jesus directs his question to Philip. It makes perfect sense in the narrative, by the way, because Philip is, if you remember from chapter 1, he's from a nearby town in this side, in this area, in this region, this side of the Galilee. And Philip's response is a worldly response. He essentially says, okay, listen, I'm doing the math here. 200 denarii. 200 denarii is equal to about eight months' wages. You know, so if I had like, if I had eight months' common workers' wages saved up, that would be enough to feed my family for a few months. Like, that's a good amount of money. That's a really decent amount of money to have saved. 
But that wouldn't even give everybody here a bite. Not everybody here would even get a bite if that was the case, right? Um, Philip's, Philip's first, this, this response to Jesus, Philip's answer to Jesus can be, I think, intentionally contrasted with Philip's first response to Jesus. Do you remember? Having been brought to Jesus, most likely by Andrew, I argue in chapter one, and if you're wondering why I think that, you can go back and listen. But so he's brought to Jesus. Philip then rushes off and he tells Nathaniel these words. He says, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. You know, like we talked about the weightiness of these words for a first century Jewish man who, who like their whole, for centuries, all of their peoples have been waiting for this Messiah to come. And now he's like, he's here. He's here. Like we found the guy that Moses was writing about. We found the guy that the prophets were writing about and echoing back and forth to one another. But you know, at this moment, those words appear to be lost on him a, a little bit. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't respond by saying, I'm not saying that I think he should know, you know, geez, why can't you just, you know, multiply a bunch of bread? But I think, you know, he doesn't say, you're the one Moses was writing about. You're the one the prophets pointed forward to. You're the chosen one of God. Instruct us and it will be enough. He doesn't respond the way that Mary did at the wedding in Cana, which, you know, I, I argued then too. Like, I don't necessarily think that Mary's like expecting water to wine. Like, I don't know that she knows about the miraculous, but she knows if somebody can do something about this, it's Jesus. And so what does she do? She tells the servants, do whatever he tells you and it'll be enough, right? As one commentator writes, he says, Philip's re response betrays the fact that he can think only at the level of the marketplace, the natural world. His, his mindset is completely about the material, right? And Andrew's response is similar to that. Andrew just essentially points to the reality that there's this young boy present. Five barley loaves. You know, barley, it's, it's the only, this is the only account of the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that has that detail that brings up barley loaves. It's not, a, it's not just like this later development thing where it's like, oh, it was probably, no, like barley, it was exactly the kind of bread that this little boy would have had. It was the bread of the poorer classes. But more than that, John is drawing on this historical reality of barley to make another point that we're going to talk about in a little bit. But so, so Andrew sees this little boy with these barley loaves and two fish. But essentially he's, what he's saying is, um, so that's the only food up here. Five barley loaves and two fish that that little boy has, that's the only food up here. And what is that to so many is what he says, right? So, so hang with me here. We've seen two types of followers, two view, views on Passover, two purposes behind Jesus' question, and two answers to his question, all of them really highlighting the reality of our neediness, you know, the reality of the neediness of the disciples, the reality of the neediness of the crowd, and yet Jesus' desire to care for them in the midst of that neediness by telling them something about who he is even as he's feeding them. So that brings us now obviously to two miracles, two miracles that are in view in the text, two miracles that are in view. Look at verses 10 through 13. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves. When he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish 
as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So I said earlier, you know, that I keep saying this is a crowd of about 20,000, uh, maybe even more than that. And the reason that I'm, and, and you're like, but it says 5,000 men. The reason I'm, I say that, the text tells us there's 5,000 5, men in attendance, but really what it's doing is, is counting households, you know, counting households, a lot of women, a lot of children who are present in this text as well. There's also another reason that John might be talking about 5,000 men in particular, but we'll get to that. We'll get to that in a little bit. Um, but the idea here is this vast number, 5,000 men, what does it immediately follow? John gives this detail. He doesn't give it at the beginning. He doesn't say, when Jesus saw a large crowd of 5,000 men approaching, he waits to give the detail of the number of the men until after we see how much food is there. Right? So immediately after being told, five barley loaves, two fish, 5,000 men. Right? This is like heightening the drama. It's, it's heightening the, the nature of the miracle itself because Jesus takes these loaves and he gives thanks. If he used the traditional thanksgiving for bread among first century Jews, you know, like to give us an idea of what we might have heard had we been there hearing Jesus pray over this bread, it would have sounded something like, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And that's exactly what he does. You know, the King of, the king of the universe brings forth bread. And the text tells us he does the same with the fish. Then he just distribute, distributes it to everyone as much as they wanted. And you know, ever since I was a, a little boy, right, I grew up in a church that you know, told these stories, especially like feeding of the 5,000 in Sunday school. Ever since I was a little boy, I've tried to imagine what this looked like, you know. What did it look like? Is this, like, you break off a piece and, you know, like, I don't, it's hard to envision because the text just makes it appear so natural. And that's because I think it was. Just this, this thing that the Lord is claiming that he's Lord over these realities, right? He's the one who brings bread forth. He's the one who provides, you know. And so everyone has as much as they want. Not only did everyone eat enough to be satisfied, but there were 12 baskets left over from the five barley loaves. 12 baskets. It's, it's really striking, you know, and... This is, the, this is one of the few details that's shared across all four gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all say 12 baskets. 12 baskets. You know, there are some people who would say, well, that's because it's just symbol. This story didn't really happen. It's just symbolic. No, no, no. Listen. Um, there, is, there is symbolic imagery here. But Jesus knows, God knows, exactly how many baskets are going to be left over as he's performing this miracle. He knows exactly what's going to happen. This is all very pur purposeful and intentional. So yeah, it's historical reportage across all four Gospels. Twelve baskets left over, and yet with this detail of twelve baskets, we see something further. Twelve commonly referring to the twelve tribes, to Israel, to God's people, to this holistic number of like representing the people of God, the people of the Lord, becoming for us a living parable that God will in fact provide for his people. 
that he'll meet his people, that he'll provide for them, that he'll care for them, that he'll sustain them, that God's the one who does this, that Jesus, in fact, came in order to provide for his people, okay? And not only will he provide, but he provides in abundance, like way more than we thought or anticipated anything like this could actually ever happen. Now, the problem is that we tend to think of this the same way that Philip was thinking about it, you know? The marketplace, the here and now, the things we can touch and taste and see, you know, like um, he provides an abundance, health and wealth. But that, you know, right away, right away as you read through the narrative, that kind of explanation falls flat. It's not, it's not that Jesus provides everything in abundance that you think you need on this earth, that he provides abundance of cures for all diseases if you really believe, or that he provides an abundance of wealth and financial prosperity for those who just claim it. That's not at all the point. Here's the point. It's that it's, it's the opposite. It's like you often have your own agenda. You often have your own agenda surrounding Jesus related to what you think or I think. I often have my own agenda related to what I think Jesus should be doing for me, for you. But Jesus comes offering you far more than you ever could have imagined. The abundance that Jesus offers is so much greater than, you, than our worldly idea or our worldly version of what that abundance could look like in health and riches. And Jesus is showing those who are paying attention exactly that, you know. He's showing them this sign goes beyond this sign, you know, like, goes way further than simply providing them food and we're going to, I don't want to say too much about it because that's the conversation that Jesus has in the next couple of weeks with these people. But I said earlier, this section shows us <clears throat> two miracles that are in view, you know, and you might say, what do you mean by that? I see one miracle in the text. Well, one miracle in view is obviously the Jesus feeding the 5,000 with five barley loaves and two, two fish. But the purpose behind the miracle is also to point backwards to those who know their scriptures, to those who are in, in attendance who've heard these stories, to another text, 2 Kings chapter 4, in which the prophet Elisha does something similar. And I'll just read the text because it's three, this, this story is three verses. The text says, a man came from Baal Shalisha to bring the man of God bread. So the man of God is Elisha. To bring uh, the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of corn in his sack. And Elisha said, give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. So here Elisha, just to give some background to the, the story, Elisha, the narrative, Elisha travels to Gilgal. There's a famine in Gilgal. You know, there's a famine in the land. And so all the sons and the prophets are sitting, so the sons of the prophets are sitting with him, sitting before him. He's instructing. And, and Elisha instructs his servant to prepare this large pot to cook some stew. It's not going to be nearly enough. Um, but while the stew's being prepared, this man comes to Elisha with 20 loaves of barley. You know, same kind of bread we find in John 6. The bread of the poor class. This would have been small, 
small, hard loaves, these small loaves. But they're the first fruits of his crop. And even in the midst of famine, he's giving this offering to the Lord. And, and so um, Elisha commands him, give those loaves to the hundred men. So this is a group of prophets or disciples of Elisha who are present at the time. His servant in the text, 2 Kings 4, his servant, which is the Hebrew word for the exact term used to describe the little boy in John 6. So that, that word boy in John 6 can be translated young man or young servant. And in fact, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, if you read uh, 2 Kings, or first King, 2 Kings chapter 4, 42 to 44, that word uh, is the same as the word for boy in John 6, right? So, so the servant says to him, how can I set this before a hundred men? And what does that do? Like that mirrors Andrew's question. What are they for so many? It's essentially the exact same question. What are they for so many? And so there was enough for everyone to eat, to have their fill. And then there was barley loaves. There's barley uh, bread left over just as Elijah has told them. And just as we see in John chapter 6 with the loaves of bread left over. And the point of the narrative, the point of the narrative in 2 Kings is also similar to highlight God's care and provision for his people. You know, uh, God's faithfulness even in the midst of famine. But Jesus demonstrates himself here to be the true and better Elisha. Not only because he feeds 5,000 men with five loaves instead of just 100 with 20. You know, it's not just because he's upping the ante of the miracle substantially. But also because in doing this he shows... You know, you called rightly Elisha the man of God. That was his title in the scriptures. But Jesus shows, I'm the true and better Elisha. I'm the true and better man of God. A man from God. A man who himself was fully God. God come into this world, put on flesh, dwelling among you. And who therefore could provide for his people, not just by feeding them earthly food, but by giving himself Offering himself as the greatest provision for his people. That he is the bread, but more to be said on that as John 6 unfolds, right? I'm getting ahead of myself. But the point here is that in this miracle, Jesus wants to reveal more about himself to these people that are so bent on pursuing him for their own agenda. He wants to show them his agenda, like why he came. He's not performing this miracle as an end in itself, and that's what he's going to tell them. You know, like, he's not some miracle worker who goes from town to town doing various good deeds or doing these miraculous works in order to make a living. He's signaling something about himself, about who he is and what he came to do so that those who are pursuing him, that he has compassion for, that they might believe in him on the basis of who he actually is, on what the signs point to, not just on what the signs give them. Do you see the difference? He wants them to embrace him. To see that he came to offer himself for them. But is that what happens? So where we now find two responses to Jesus. Two responses to Jesus. You know, you might say, man, every week in the text, there's like another section of response. But, you know, can we remember? John's audience that he's writing to the first century audience that he's writing to, agnostic Jews, um, uh, spiritually seeking, spiritually seeking Greeks, God-fearing Greeks, people who are kind of on the fence about Jesus, wondering like, is he really the Christ? Who is the Christ, you know? So John's always calling out a response. What are you going to do? What are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do about him? And here we see two responses. So when the people saw the sign that he had done, verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed 
the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So on the one hand, you know, these people speak truth. You know, they speak better than they know. They speak better than they realize. In the text, they say that this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. That is absolutely right. As I mentioned early on in John's gospel, because you might say the prophet, what's that? So early in John's gospel, the religious leaders visit John the Baptist and they ask him, are you the prophet? And I said, so this is a messianic term. And this is derived from uh, Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19. Let me just read you some portions again. To remind you, the Lord, your, this is Moses speaking. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And the Lord said to me, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I will require, I, will, I myself will require it of him. There's this one who's to come who will have my words. The very words of the Father will be within him. It will, he will come to speak out the Father's words to the people. After Moses died, someone else wrote the conclusion to Deuteronomy, obviously. And they wrote that the prophet, like Moses, never came to God's people. This one, this, this promised one, he never came. This one who would have the Father's words in his mouth to speak the very word of, of God to them. And we just saw in this last section, you know, the, the, the Old Testament concludes, right, and many prophets came, but not this prophet like Moses that's described here in Deuteronomy 18. Right? And so, um, just as we saw in the last section, Jesus is standing there now, and he's telling them, it's me. This is me. Right? Jesus is standing there. He's like, I'm here. He's telling them through this miracle that all of this is pointing to him. He's the true and better Elisha. The one who can provide in abundance by providing himself. He's the true and better prophet like Moses. The one who is, yes, he has the Father's word because he is the word. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And that word put on flesh and dwelt among us. He's the true and better Passover. And we're going to see that theme increasingly develop. Right? So it's all about him. And they're, they're right to say it. They're right to say these words. This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. They're right to say it. But just as they have an incomplete and wrong-headed understanding of this Passover, in the same way, and really for that reason, they have an incomplete and wrong-headed understanding of the prophet who is to come. Because think about it. Think about it. Like, follow the logic here for a minute. Okay. If the Passover is primarily like this rallying cry, this nationalistic fervor, a remembrance of God throwing off the oppressor and Independence Day kind of a deal, then the first prophet Moses, what did he come to do? The first prophet Moses came to aid God in this, in this nationalistic independence. And so certainly the second prophet, the, the one like Moses who is to come, the prophet, he will come to throw off our first century oppressors. He will come to throw off the Romans. And remember, John mentioned specifically there were 5,000 men here. I said we'd come back to that, but okay, so this is a little, this is um, not entirely sure if this is the case, right? A little speculative, but that might indicate 5,000 men. Think about the intimidation. Think about um, the desire to form some kind of an army 
who are seeking out their general. Jesus isn't intimidated, but this isn't his time. Jesus is a different kind of king. He's not a worldly king who comes to defeat the nations who are opposing his people, but rather he's a heavenly king who created all of the nations and desires to save a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. From the oppression, yeah, from oppression, yes, from oppression of sin. He didn't come just to deal with the symptoms of the problem, you guys. Like, he didn't come just to deal with the stuff that's at the surface. That's not what he did. He came primarily to deal with the root of the problem. And he does this at the cross. This is the cross work of Christ. This is what John 6 is going to increasingly show us. John, throughout his gospel, is going to increasingly bring us to this moment. The cross work of Christ where the sin of the people was laid upon him in order that they might find life in him, in order that they might find provision through him, in order that they might be satisfied, in order that they might be sustained. Jesus gave himself for his people. You know, these people have exactly what they need right in front of them, but they just can't see it. They're passing it up in favor of what they think they need. It's like pub crackers in comparison to roast beef. Much bigger distinction than that. But we do this all the time. All the time. Yet this is about the cross work of Jesus Christ. And you know, this passage isn't making direct allusions to the Lord's table. It's making direct allusions to the cross. But the Lord's table preaches the same thing. Like here at the table, we also find a meal that's meant to point us to something deeper, something greater. This is not just juice and bread. I mean, it is. But this act of coming forward and receiving together is meant to point us together by the grace of God to the reality of who Jesus is and what he came to do and to serve as a reminder to us what we are so prone to forget that his body was broken and blood was shed so that ours wouldn't have to be and that by him we might have life and that in him now he goes with us to enable us to follow him and to have all that we need in him until he comes again. So let's remind each other of that again this morning and so this meal if you are a believer is for you. If you're not a believer this meal is meant to proclaim that which we believe so we ask that you come forward uh, observe you can look don't take this meal is for those of us who are pro proclaiming with these elements, this is what we believe, that Christ stood in our place. If you're here this morning and you don't believe, let this be your first communion. Where you believe and throw yourselves on the mercies of Christ. But I invite you forward to take of these elements back to your seats.